Um, when Simon said that we could choose which psalm we wanted to preach one from, Psalm 139 immediately came to my mind because it's a psalm I know very well. Um, it's a psalm that I've used to pray in and for other people. I've prayed for other people. And um, it seemed a really wonderful one to choose. And it seems I'm in good company because the Queen, the late Queen, chose Psalm 139 to have as she was brought in in her coffin to uh, the Westminster Hall to lie in state. They sang it over her, which was really lovely. Have a look on that. You can see that online if you want to. Um, but as I began to read this psalm and reread it in preparation for what I was going to say today, I realised that the first part of it was full of truths and um, and knowledge and, and understanding that I really loved and I really, um, yeah, I really felt it encouraged me and made me feel moved. Then I came to the end bit, the little bit just before the end, and I thought, ooh, hmm, gosh. And I realised I'd probably just skipped over that most of my, most of my life and thought, ooh, that bit just doesn't fit in. Well... Today, we're going to come to it in due course, and I've tried not to skip it, but anyway, we'll see. So, does anybody remember their school hymn book in the days before digital? You young ones wouldn't have had one of these. We, we all had one, didn't we, that we sang from. This isn't actually mine, this is my grandpa's. 1,200 songs in here, amazing, with such faves as Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam. Does anybody remember that? Yes. And tell me the old, old story. Good old faves. Well, that is what the book of Psalms is. It's a book of hymns and poems. And they were written over a period of about a thousand years, a long time. And they were sung or recited by the people of Israel. They are songs of praise and worship, songs of lament, sad songs, songs that describe historical events. Um, and they were to remind the children of Israel how good God had been to them, how faithful he'd been through the years. And even though we don't have any of the ancient music that they would have used, um, I can remember as a little girl, my grandpa was an Anglican vicar, and I used to sit on my Auntie Joan's lap and try and sing the Psalms from the Book of Common Prayer, which I must admit had rather repetitive, dull tunes. <laughs> they didn't stand out to me however yeah not not particularly inspiring the, the psalms have inspired lots of um contemporary music who remembers the fave by the rivers of babylon boney m <laughs> psalm 137 just back you can look it up uh this one you may not realize gangster's paradise by coolio cam do you know that that is psalm 23 or some of it anyway you too actually use the whole of psalm 40 in a song they imaginatively imaginatively called 40 there we go and shakespeare used the psalms frequently in all of his works particularly the sonnets they are recognized as superb literature the Psalms, if you look in your Bibles back, you can see they're split into five different books with different themes. And the book that Psalm 139 is found in is book five. And it's a book about praise and worship. 
It's a response to God's commitment to his people and um, joy as they return from exile. Um, And Psalm 139 begins by saying, it's a psalm of David. Can you see there in your books? It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David. David, the warrior king. When he was a little boy, he fought Goliath and flung the stones at him and brought him down. He went on to rule the nation. He began the process of building the first temple. He was a man who sinned greatly. He committed adultery and murder. And yet, God said he was a man after his own heart. Sounds like it's worth reading to me. David was completely repentant of the things that he'd done. And he asked God to forgive him. Many of his psalms are full of sorrow and repentance. But Psalm 39 is a little bit different. I feel like the gist of this psalm is, okay, God, you know me completely. Wow, you are amazing. You are everywhere and you made me. God, it's just terrible the way that some people turn against you and want evil instead of good. Sort them out. Oh, and by the way, sort me out too. The psalm is incredibly intimate and personal. Constantly it refers to you and I, talking about him and God, you and me, you and my. In verse 1 it says, you have searched me, Lord. In verse 3, you discern my going out. In verse 15, you, no, when I was woven together, your eyes saw me. To me, it speaks of such a close relationship with God. David is clearly completely secure in his relationship with God. He knows him and he knows that God knows him. It's clear that he feels safe and he feels loved. The first section from verse 1 to 4, David talks about how he knows that God has searched him and that God knows him inside out. You can often tell, can't you, when somebody comes home from work, maybe, or something that's stressed them out a bit, how they're feeling by the look on their face, their stance, you know, their shoulders are either up or down, by the way they treat the dog as they're coming in. You can tell the sort of day they've had. But you can't really know how they feel because you can't know what they're thinking. God perceives our thoughts only God in Matthew chapter 9 verse 4 Jesus he was around the Pharisees and he knew what they were thinking it says he knew the thoughts of the teachers of the law who were grumbling about him only God can know our thoughts it's called omniscience big word means all knowing he knows everything about us We can only see from the outside what we think people are about. But God looks in our hearts. And I think that really made me think, I need to look at my own attitude when I'm judging people by what I perceive they're thinking. Mm -hmm. Only God knows. In Chronicles 
chapter 28, verse 9. This is a prayer that David says over his son, Solomon. And he says, The Lord searches every heart. He understands every desire and every thought. Simon referred to not being happy about some of his. I really get that. I don't know about you, but that's not entirely a comforting thought to me that God knows all of that. I know that often my thoughts and my desires are just not what they should be. To be aware that God knows what we're going to do before we even do it. To know that he knows what we're going to say even before the words come out of our mouth is a little bit scary, isn't it? But that doesn't seem to be the sense you get from David in this psalm. I really don't feel that about him. It feels like David knows he's fully known and he's not fearful. He's not uncomfortable. He seems really content in understanding the fact that God knows him. God knows us. So from first five, David begins to talk about the truth that God is with him all the time. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. So I'm going into the Hebrew now, Simon, and I don't know how to pronounce it. The, the word for hen is, uh, it's spelt T-S-U-W-R. Have a go. Tsfer. Tsfer? Anyway, <laughs> what it means is um, it's used to describe a military fortification. And the context here is suggesting that you're guarding a, a valuable object, protecting it, almost like you're holding it in your hands. Again, you have the sense that David feels at peace by the knowledge that God is with him. He's encircling him and his hand is upon him. My husband, Rob, gives the most amazing hugs, totally engulfing you. <laughs> he's, he's tall and, he's, and you're... Yes, wrapped around. The children don't always appreciate it, but <laughs> he really hugs when he hugs. And that's how God is with us, his people. He hems us in with his protective hand upon us. Some of you may have been here for the ladies' night. The ladies, anyway. Um, and a lady called a Amy Summerfield came and gave testimony of how she came to know God after years of feeling stuck, she finally turned to God and stood up in a meeting with her eyes closed and her hand holding what she thought was her friend's. When she opened her eyes, there was nobody there, but she could feel this hand holding her. God wants to put his protective hand over us, but he won't force us. We have to turn to him little bit like a toddler holding up the hands to be picked up. So David continues in verse 6 saying, It's too hard for him to understand this knowledge. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Wherever he goes, to the heavens or to the depths, in verse 9, to the far side of the sea, 
Or if he tries to hide in the dark, he can't flee from God's presence. There is nowhere where God isn't. When I used to pray with my kids, um, I can remember one time with Jacob, um, and we'd been praying, and we, I think we'd been talking about God being everywhere. And just as he was laying his head down to go to sleep, he said, he's not under the bed, is he? <laughs> <laughs> there is nowhere where God isn't. God is omnipresent. That's the word. Always present. Always there. And I love it that one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel. And it means God with us. It's not just a physical thing, though. His presence is more than that. Um, I don't know if many of you have family meals like this where everybody's there, but you feel like they're not there, really, because they're on their phones. Their bodies might be there, but their brains are somewhere else entirely. It's not like that with God. He says in verse 10, If I settle settle on the far side of the sea... Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Mm. We're going to New Zealand to visit our daughter in January. That's a really, really long way away. It seems very much the far side of the sea. Even there, God is with us. And David knows that not only is God everywhere, he is there with an understanding and a knowledge of what David needs. He guides him with his right hand. It's sometimes described as the particular presence of God when his presence is so overwhelming that it really moves us and it directs us and it helps us. God is everywhere, in everything and through everything. Ephesians 4 verse 6 says, There is one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all and we know as believers as followers of Jesus that he's particularly with us by his Holy Spirit once we turn to him and become followers of Jesus the Holy Spirit comes to live in us it's amazing so even though David cannot fully understand the enormity of what God is and what he does Again, it feels like he's completely content to trust him. The God who makes the night shine like the day because darkness is the same to him. Tomorrow is a time when our society celebrates dark and everything to do with dark. But we need to remember God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. He's with us. We do not need to fear anything. God knows us. And God is with us. And as we move through the passage to verse 14. I love this one. Rob's favourite kids song is entitled, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. A great song by Jim Bailey. Have a listen to that. He used to squirt us with water pistols while he was doing it. It was good song, good song. Yeah, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm going to ask you now to turn to the person next to you and say, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. (laughs) The the Hebrew language gives a, a depth to this description and it says that fearfully means great 
reverence, heartfelt interest, respect even. And wonderfully, when translated, means unique and set apart. The miracle of the human body. This is amazing. Every second, more than 100,000 chemical reactions take place in your brain. It has 10 billion nerve cells to record what you see and hear. That information comes to your brain through the miracle of the eye, which has 100 million receptor cells, rods and cones, in each eye. Your retina has four layers of nerve cells. Altogether, the system makes the equivalent, this is just mind-blowing, of 10 billion calculations a second before the image even gets to the optical nerve. And once it reaches your brain, the cerebral cortex has more than a dozen separate vision centres which help process it all. All a happy coincidence of evolution? Hmm. I wonder. It's not what God says. In the confessions of St. Augustine, didn't know he wrote a confession, but apparently he did. Um, he says this, people travel to wonder at the height of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, and at the circular motion of the stars. And yet, they pass themselves by without wondering. When God made humans, the Bible tells us he formed them with his hands. In Genesis 1, Alan reminded us last week, it says, So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And when he'd done it, he said, that's very good. The miracle of human life is just beyond our understanding. The very millisecond that an egg is fertilised in the fallopian tube, the entire genetic code of that future baby boy or girl is decided. The sex of the baby, the colour of the eyes, the colour of the hair, the height they will reach as an adult. Every single one unique, not even identical twins have the same DNA. It's just incredible. Um, some of you know I'm going to be a nanny. I've decided that's my term of reference very soon. And our first grandson, notice what I'm saying first, hoping for more, will be born within a few weeks. weeks. And as the weeks have passed, my little grandson has grown inside his mummy. God has been knitting him together. He's seen his unformed body. Like it says in verse 16, he's not hidden from God. And I know medicine has advanced so far that the 3D images you can see of babies in their mummy's wombs are absolutely incredible. But those scans can't tell you what they're going to be like, what's in their hearts. But God can, even then. This part of the psalm is probably my favourite. It moves me. It's so tender. You can almost forget that David, the warrior king, hardened by battle, 
is writing it. It has a sense of being held, of being nurtured and being cared for. His loving Heavenly Father is described so well. And the word used for womb in, I can't remember which verse is it, uh, in my mother's womb, I can't remember which verse is it, uh, verse 13, yeah, is in the Hebrew again, get me with the Hebrew, um, is uh, rechem, I can't pronounce that one, and it means compassion. The God of compassion looks upon each tiny embryo. In fact, before that, they're a zygote. Or even before that, they're a cytoblast. He looks on compassion as they develop in the womb. For the baby, the womb is a place of safety and care and nurturing. Some of you may know that I'm a volunteer at a local pregnancy centre, the Haven in Burgess Hill. We do work that includes counselling many mothers and fathers too, actually, who've lost babies as a result of miscarriage, stillbirth and abortion. And we also go into local schools, hoping to help educate, here my, <laughs> this is really funny, my um, thing has changed it to kiddos, but I, it's not kiddos, it's the children, the teenagers, the young people. <laughs> I don't know why it did that. Um, helping to educate them into what happens in the mother's body as the baby is conceived and as it develops. We explain the timeline, the 40-week timeline from conception to birth. We allow them to come to their own conclusions about questions such as, when does life begin? When are you a person? When are you alive? It's interesting, their answers. But God knows when life begins. How ironic that the place that should be the safest for a baby, their mother's womb, Reckham, place of compassion, in our world has come one of the most dangerous. In the last 50 years, it's estimated that 1.5 billion babies have been aborted. The numbers are staggering and horrifying. It's not what God intended. He created us for life. God knows us. He's with us. He created us. David tries to process the enormity of these facts and think about what's in God's mind. And if you think that there were how many processes going on in our mind just in one second, to, to try and encompass what that might be in God's mind, all David can do is sort of compare it to the grains of sand on the earth. Um, so many thoughts. It would take him so long to count them. Maybe sending him to sleep like you do when you count sheep. But he wakes up and God is still with him. Now, here we are at verse 19. <laughs> I wasn't looking forward to this bit. <laughs> so, I'm going to read it again. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you? And abhor those who are in rebellion against you. 
that section could not be in greater contrast, could it, to the stuff before? You could almost describe it as hate speech. Hate speech, loosely defined by various organisations, is using language that is intentionally hateful and designed to incite further violence to certain groups or individuals. It's a definition in our society which is becoming increasingly blurred as we lose our grip on what is right and wrong in God's eyes. It's never right to encourage violence towards anyone else, ever. But God is clear about sin. He hates it. And when we start to decide that right and wrong is all about what it means for us, rather than accepting what God says, things go badly wrong. Surprisingly, the Bible doesn't actually ban hate. In Romans 12, Paul says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. God hates evil. But in verse 12, David goes further. It's not just those hating evil, it's those that do evil. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? It jars a bit, doesn't it? Isn't what we're supposed to do is love the sinner and hate the evil? Jesus, when he was talking to the crowds on the shores of Galilee, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, or bless those who persecute you. So how do we reconcile these two approaches? So I didn't really know. (laughs) So I had to root around a bit and come up with some ideas of my own, but asked the pastor afterwards for the definitive (laughs) answer to this question. Firstly, I thought the context is really important. David, king of Israel, leader of many armies, fighter of many battles, has many enemies, many enemies who oppose him, or more importantly to him, people who oppose God, the God he worships, he adores, and he trusts completely. He is indignant and he's appalled against such rebellion. I wonder, are we appalled and shocked in the way that we hear people belittle the love, the God we claim to love and worship? Do we wince when we hear his name taken in vain? When the name of Jesus is used as a swear word, the Israelites wouldn't even say God's name. They thought it was too holy. Yahweh, the name that God gave to Moses when he was at the burning bush and he's asking who should say he should say had sent him. The third of the Ten Commandments say, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Do we take this seriously? David really did. When I was little and we used to be watching television, my mum would turn off the telly if anybody swore in any programme. And we used to be there thinking, please don't swear, please don't swear. (laughs) We rarely got through a programme. These days, you would do well to go five minutes before you hear somebody take God's name in vain. The song that David wrote is so full of praise. He's so in awe of the God who made him, who is with him, who knows him. But when he hears people speak of God with evil intent, he's really angry. So much that he prays that God will kill them. Pretty strong stuff. It's not the only psalm where we hear this. There are lots of them. Have a look. Secondly, notice what he's asking for. He's not asking that he can kill them. He's saying, God, take action. 
The point is that God is the ultimate judge. And I wonder if David, as he pointed the finger of accusation, actually was very aware of his own sin. When you're pointing, you have a finger pointing, actually you have three fingers pointing back at yourself. I think it's no coincidence that he finishes the tirade against God's enemies and he turns his attention to himself and he asks for God to search him and see if there's any wicked way in him. Search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How do we respond to these verses? Do we have the finger pointing back at ourselves? What's our thought life like? Do we allow gossip and talking behind people's backs slip into our everyday lives? Are we jealous? Do we want what other people have? Are we proud, not willing to take criticism or even advice? Search me, O God. I think it's a request I would do well to make every day, knowing that I come to the God who loves me who made me, who was and is always with me, who knows me inside out. When we ask God to search us, we're asking him to reveal the sin in our lives so that we can say sorry to him. David knew that sin was the biggest problem. It separated him from God. He knew that he was flawed and sinful, but he knew where to go. He wanted God to lead him in the way everlasting. And the key to that was saying sorry. God cannot be near anything unholy, anything sinful. So he made a plan. David wrote this song 500 years or so before Jesus was born. And although David knew and loved and trusted God, he didn't yet know what the God who made him was going to do. That he was going to make a way. John 3.16 tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God made a way for us to be with him forever through the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Jesus took on himself everything that we'd ever said or done wrong, and he paid the price. He paid the price for our sin. There's always a consequence for sin. We see it in our lives and the lives of those around us, in wars and famine and slavery and oppression, in greed and hate, in broken lives, broken families, broken communities, a broken world. The consequence of separation from God, it leads to everything that's wrong in our world. When we're not made right with God, there's a sort of God-shaped hole in our lives and we can sense that there's something not quite right but we can't really work out quite what it is well that hole can be filled with Jesus so what do we have to do about this the shocking answer is nothing all we have to do is accept it the free gift of forgiveness that Jesus bought for us on the cross when you accept forgiveness however you are accepting that you have done something wrong otherwise why would you need forgiveness the cross was not the end for jesus he rose to life and we celebrate on easter day the resurrection of jesus from the grave and that's the promise 
of future resurrection and the walk to the life everlasting. When we accept Jesus as our saviour, we accept his free gift and our new life begins. We're complete. The whole is filled. So how do we respond to this psalm? Maybe you love the idea, like I did, that God knows you and that he's always with you and that he loves you because he made you. But like me, you prefer to skip the bit at the end. The verses that call us to question about the sin in our lives. How do you respond to that free gift of forgiveness that Jesus offers you? You have to say yes. So I'm going to finish by um, praying a prayer. And if any of you have never prayed this prayer before, I'm going to ask you to join in your minds with me. I'm going to pray it in phrases so that you can join in in your head. You don't have to say anything out loud. And I'll just say it first so that you know what (laughs) you're going to be praying if you do pray it. And it is, dear God, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross so that I can be forgiven. I'm sorry for all the things that I have said and done wrong. Please come into my life and help me as I follow your way. Amen. So let's just close our eyes. Take a minute and think about whether you want to pray this prayer.